Hey, it's Greg Hoffman from Take Command. And the best part about podcasts is they create a 25th hour in the day. Whenever I'm commuting, metro, car, even when I'm riding my bike around town, although in that case, one earphone only, safety kids, I'm always listening to podcasts. And this offseason, you can get all the insights, all the news, all the analysis, and Logan and I occasionally make a joke or two in the Take Command podcast on demand so it fits in to your busy schedule. Follow Take Command in the Odyssey app or wherever you get your pods. It's the most anticipated WNBA season in history. And you know what that means. Court is back in session. Welcome to Queens of the Court, an Odyssey original podcast. I'm your girl, Cheryl Swoop, And I'm Jordan Robinson. All WNBA season long, we'll be bringing you interviews with star athletes, analysis on your favorite teams, and lots of hot takes. Order, order in the court. Follow and listen to Queens of the Court on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. It's time to take command with former NFL tight end Logan Paulson and former Commander's Beat reporter Craig Hoffman. What's up? What's happening? Welcome in to Take Command. I am Craig Hoffman, covered the Washington Commanders from 2015 to 2020 on the beat. And the head coach during that time, a guy by the name of Jay Gruden, who's with us today here on the pod. Of course, Logan played 10 years in the NFL at tight end. While some people might expect us to rehash a bunch of that timeline, that's actually not what we want to do here, Logan, today. I want to use Jay's incredible football mind because my favorite part of that, of my job during that time was, was just learning the game. And, you know, whether it was in press conferences or just side conversations, Jay's a guy that actually, I don't know if he knows this, taught me a lot of football, uh, the X's and O's and the ins and outs and some of the details and, and that, that intricate uh, nature of the NFL. And so to be able to have Jay... You on the podcast and, and talking about it. Uh, really appreciate the time today. Hey, no problem. Enjoy being here. It's good to see Logan again. He's one of my favorite all-time players, a coach, the toughest guy around, and I hated when we lost him. I was going to say, what was the what? Because the timeline matches up, though. That like the end of your Washington career, Jay, you were the coach. What, what's the, what was the end of Logan's time <laughs> in Washington? That's the one thing we'll rehash. We'll just go straight to the point. Well, I think he uh, was a free agent, and uh, we didn't re-sign him. I, I think there were some people in the organization didn't appreciate Logan and what he could do for our team like I did. And unfortunately I didn't have final say I lost a lot of players I wanted and I didn't get a lot of players that I wanted, so to speak. But, uh, you know, people don't understand how hard it is to find a good fundamentally blocking tight end in the NFL nowadays. It's a, it's a dying breed, a dying position. It's a tough position to find. You got to be smart. You got to be tough. You got to be able to handle different kind of blocking schemes on the run uh, movement. And uh, Logan was as good as anybody at it. And uh, that hurt our running game drastically. When yeah, we lost I mean, it. Jay doesn't remember this probably, but a guy by the name of Vernon Davis also signed here. And that was a big <laughs> a big factor in me not being around too. But I appreciate you saying that, Jay. Um, one of the things I vividly remember is like that was kind of Sean's first foyer into calling offensive plays and developing game plans. How was it mentoring him? I know you guys knew each other from the past. And uh, how are your styles different in terms of developing game plans and coaching philosophy? Well, we came up together. You know, he worked with my brother, uh, and then I also hired him in the UFL, and I tried to get him in Cincinnati. Sean and I go way back, uh, way, way back. So we have very similar ideas uh, growing up through the same tree. What I liked about Sean is he, able to, he was able to work with the Shanahans uh, for a couple of years, which he was to learn some of their concepts, their running game concepts, which is good. Uh, carry over when I got the head job here. So it was a natural transition for me to keep Sean. Uh, we could carry the similar ideas. He learned some from uh, the Shanahan's we could implement with us and uh, some of the things I learned over the years at Cincinnati. Uh, it was a good mesh, a good combination. We both had major input in the game plan. It worked very effortlessly together. Right. And like uh, another quick question. So like you mentioned, I think a lot of people don't understand this, but like what are some of the differences between like the Shanahan coaching tree and philosophy and what you do, which I don't even know how you would characterize your, your coaching tree. Like what, like what is it more like vertical passing attack? It's West coast principles, but like, can you talk about that comparison a little bit? Yeah, it's, it's West coast principles, uh, obviously multiple formations and, and try to get in multiple sets and do different things. Obviously plays that look the same that are different, uh, plays that look different that are the same, various things, things like that. Get the ball out of quarterback's hand, be very quarterback friendly is what we try to do. Uh, protect our quarterback at all costs, whether it's a quick game, the drop, the quick drop back game, uh, the naked bootleg game, the play pass, uh, maximum protection, whatever it might be to make sure we make him as comfortable as possible. Uh, because at the end of the day, it's all about the quarterback. And if you don't make him comfortable, you have no chance. 
uh, like a lot of these teams that don't have a quarterback. So uh, <laughs> that's kind of what we try to do. And then obviously you got to, you got to adjust to your players that you have, you know, um, and, and that's the biggest issue that, uh, you know, you try to, you, you try to bring players in to fit what you do, but if they're, they're not here, you better fit what your players do or nothing's going to work. Yeah, that's actually one of the questions I wanted to ask you about is, is we look at trying to evaluate what happened in Washington last year with Scott Turner. And, you know, Scott had a really tough job. He had players in and out of the lineup. They spend the entire offseason preparing for Ryan Fitzpatrick to be their starter. All of a sudden, it's Taylor Heineke. And I, I that's kind of the premise of the question is, like, how much of it is – a game plan that's tailored to the quarterback, how much of it is tailored to the skill position guys. Obviously, I mean, we can, when you were here, there was all kinds of offensive line uh, issues that occasionally you guys would have to completely change a game plan because you didn't think you could protect certain plays. And yet, always sometime during the game, there's going to be someone wide open on a high cross for 30 yards over the middle. That was a play that no matter who was there, you and or Sean could always get that one. I don't, I don't quite understand that, but you always got it. So how, how do you adapt a game plan throughout the year to both stick to your principles and adapt to your personnel? Well, you have to not only stick to your principles a little bit, but you, you, you also have to adapt to who you're playing against. You know, some defenses mm. are a lot more difficult to attack than other defenses, uh, whether it be a great pass rush, great coverage group, uh, great team against stopping the run, whatever it might be. I think each week you have to understand it's a different way to attack. Uh, hopefully the core principles that you have that you worked on through OTAs and training camp, there's enough in there where you can pull uh, we're going to have a whole new game plan for each individual opponent, whether it's a 3 4 team, 4 3 team, cover 2 scheme, man to man scheme, whatever it might be. Uh, you have some core concepts that you can bring, bring uh, uh, over, and the guys already know, but you always have to adapt to the players that you have, uh, the players you're going against, and obviously uh, make the quarterback as comfortable as possible. So I don't know if I answered your question. There's a lot to it. It's not as easy as saying, let's throw a high cross <laughs> over the middle. Uh, if, if Vernon Davis was running it, maybe. If Jeremy right. Finkel's running it, I don't know if that's going to work as well. You know, so... <laughs> <laughs> So uh, let's 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 dive in a little bit like this is a podcast, which is the beauty of this is we can get a lot deeper than we can on the radio. And, and so like w when you think about the, the first thing, let's say you're going in week like you're you're week one against Jacksonville. If you're Scott Turner in Washington this year or whatever it is, whatever week you look at an opponent, are you looking at your personnel? Are you looking at, at their personnel? Are you looking at like and, and when you start to look at their scheme and all that kind of stuff, what are some of the first things are you looking? Are they more of a man zone team? Are you looking at the front they play? Like what are the what are the kind of the, the checklist that you're going down as you try to eventually dive into your playbook and pick out the things you're going to work on that particular week? Well, you look at their coordinator first. It starts there and see what kind of coaches they added, uh, what kind of players they added in the offseason, uh, who their stars are, who their best players are. Then you go into scheme, front coverage, what's their foundation, what's their front uh, cover, what's their base front, what's their nickel sub front. Uh, then obviously you got to check out the blitzes and uh, the third downs and all the situational type things you got to look at. And then how you figure you got to envision how your players will fit attacking that uh, defense. Um, you know, if they're great against the run, you look at their stats, they gave up 2.8 yards on first down. And uh, How are we going to run the ball? Are we going to spread them out and run the ball? Are we going to try to pack them in and run the ball? Are they soft on the edges? Are they soft in the middle? Uh, so you got to just figure out where the best areas to attack in the running game are, uh, what play action passes fit the coverage schemes that they have and what you guys like and try to get your best players on their worst players or attack their coverages with their best coverage beaters. Um, maybe find a way to get two plays called into one. So if they're a zone man team, if you have man, man play, can it with a zone play or vice versa to try to create the matchups that you want, uh, try to get the best play possible for your quarterback with, without making it too difficult. Uh, but you always got to understand there's a lot of different ways to attack a defense. I uh, just got to figure out the best ways to fit your offense and uh, the personnel that you have. I mean, that was such a phenomenal answer. Like, is there a part of that, Coach, that you find to be the most difficult or a part that you find to be the most enjoyable in that? You know what I mean? Like, Yeah, the most difficult sometimes is, Logan, is we, we get too many plays and too many mm -hmm. ideas. You know yeah. what I mean? And, and but you're in a Wednesday meeting, you're in, in, installing your game plan, and you got all these ideas down. It takes you know two hours to install all these plays. There's no way you're going to call them all, and you can't practice them all. So you got to be able to uh, be creative, be simple, be able to attack, but also be fundamentally sound. You know what I mean? That's the hardest, you know, Sean McVay coming with these ideas. I'd have these ideas. <laughs> Wes Phillips would have these ideas. We'd have ideas coming out of our kazoo, but yeah. we have to limit them uh, to make sure we can put together a formulated game plan that 
not only we know, but the players know and they're comfortable with it. I, I think also, too, there's the element of having to teach the players, right? Because it's one thing to have a scheme yeah. that's perfect on paper, but if you can't get it through to the players for whatever reason, you got guys that you signed off the street or, you know, guys are, you know, it's just it's different than what they ran in college and they're having trouble with that. Whatever the reason is, being able to actually get it through to the players sometimes I felt like, it was one of the most frustrating things for you, especially because for you, like this stuff comes so easily. You are such a X's and O's kind of guy that that, that came so naturally to you when players wouldn't get it. You'd be like, if you just take three steps there instead of one, like you had, you had a touchdown. Like, why can't, why can't you understand oh, that? If you can't, if you can't get it through the players as a bad player, you're a bad coach. One or the other. So, uh, you got to make sure as a coach, if the players don't get it, then you can't call them. Right. So you got to make sure and, it's comfortable. But so in question form, like how did, how did you go about deciding like when it's time to just cut bait on an idea, even if you thought it was a good idea because the players weren't getting it versus trying to break through in a different way? Like how did you manage that, that teaching side of it? Well, sometimes you had to cut bait on the player if they were too stupid to understand <laughs> inside zone or what have you. <laughs> Unfortunately, I didn't have that ability, but you know, it, it works hand in hand and, uh, it, it's hard to say uh, in, in a short answer. There's so much that goes into a game plan, how to attack, uh, how to minimize your plays, how to try to expand your playbook to confuse the defense. You can't be simple and stupid in this league. Defenses will eat you up. You know, they they, they have film too. So you got to be able to throw different sets at them and different protections and different route concepts, formation uh, bunches and stacks and, and motions and jet sweep motions. Uh, that takes time. Uh, that's why when you're going through the recruiting process, a draft process, a free agent process, you want guys like Logan who take this very seriously when they come in to learn in every single concept, formation, motion, understanding the concepts of footwork, the fundamentals, but also the big picture of why we're calling these plays. We're not just calling these plays because we want to look cool and uh, outsmart everybody. We're calling them because we think it's the best way to attack a defense. So hopefully the players buy into that, that they're, you're trying to do good by them, putting them in the best situation. And it's their responsibility, responsibility to learn it. So, Coach, that's something like, you know, I help out at Independence. And where I'm always, and even when I was playing with Kyle and, you know, everywhere with you, like discerning how big or how small the game plan should be. Like, how do you know you have enough? And, like, like how do you walk that line? Because I remember with Kyle, you know, he's got all these really intricate, you know, Oscar, check with me, can do a play pass. And, you know, I felt like at times that caused guys to play slow because they just couldn't hold all that information in their head. And then he'd bring it way back, and then we didn't have enough to kind of to fight what the defense was presenting. Like, how do you – is that just all player dependent, or is that – like, what's your process? Yeah, that? that's a great question, and that's something I had, didn't figure out good enough. That's why I'm sitting here on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm telling you, there, there's a lot of different ways to attack a defense that you can really – have a big advantage, but it takes time. It takes a lot of verbiage. Uh, I think that's what Kyle does. I know that's what Sean does. Yeah. They have a lot of pre-snap keys. And if they get a zone look or a man look or over front or an under front, then they want to can it to another play or, or kill it to a different concept altogether. That takes time in the huddle. Uh, it slows yeah. the game down a little bit, but it does benefit you as an offense because you're not calling a, a running play into a loaded front or a strong safety blitz. It's going to, you know, knock your head off. You have to have some element yeah. of, the ability to change plays at the line of scrimmage. But uh, like I said, I always want to try to come up with as many plays as I call could that you could call it and run it no matter what. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. uh, those are important yeah. where you can speed it up and then also be able to jump into a no huddle at times, have some one word plays that you can get to as fast as you can. If you felt like the game was just stagnant and God, we got to get something going, you know, jump into two minute or yeah. jump into our no huddle. So it's just a way to change up, you know, the speed of the game, the tempo of the game, but, I think if you think you're going to go into a game and huddle up and call three plays at once on every play, you're 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 doomed. You know, yeah. it's too much and it takes the game, uh, takes the pace away from the game and um, puts you at a disadvantage more than an advantage. I mean, and that I think that like that three play system and all that, you know, and, and you know, in addition to all that stuff, they have the hurry up, they have the all that kind of stuff, which does present a simplified response from the defense, as you know. But how how important is it to have a quarterback? that can get you into that stuff. You know, everyone talks about the quarterback's physical tools. There's also a mental element to the game that's so important that, you know, like I hope I, that Carson Wentz has here because it allows you to do some more challenging things offensively. He has to do it. That's just the way it is. Yeah. If he can't do it, he can't play. And that's, that's right. 
you know, uh, you can only be so simple at the quarterback position. You know what I mean? What, what do you, you know? What, what, you got to be able to change the play at the line of scrimmage, and you yeah. got to help me out. I don't know when they're going to bring the strong safety blitz. I don't know when we're going to bring the bonsai blitz. You know, I have a pretty good idea. You know, if we cross the 50-yard line crunch time, we're expecting cover zero. Or in the red zone on third down and five, we might expect cover zero. But they could throw it in there at any time uh, or any yeah. other kind of blitz or any kind of double-A package. You got to be able to adjust your protections. You got to be able to adjust the running game. Uh, flip the run, can it to a pass, what have you, because it's very hard to be successful on offense if you're wasting plays. You know what I mean? Yeah. So you just yeah. try to preach the fact we can't waste plays. We can't run an outside zone, weak outside zone into a free safety blitz. I mean, we can try to yeah. push it if we want to, and, and that's great. And sometimes you might have that ability to do that, but uh, you know, you just don't want to run it into a slaughter. Yeah, when you talk about the intellect of quarterback, too, how important is it to kind of put a high floor on your mistakes? Like, to me, that was the, the magic of why, why Alex Smith won so many games. Like, even when he had to waste a play, like, it was no gain. You survive, you go to the next down. It wasn't a sack. It wasn't a turnover. It wasn't an interception. So how do you how do you coach players, and spe- especially coach quarterbacks, to make sure that when you do wind up in a bad situation that you don't make a bad situation worse? That's exactly mm-hmm. right because you know you can't be right. Sometimes the right guard will get beat. Sometimes the center will get beat or the left tackler or the tight end will hold or whatever, and you'll lose a yard. You'll drop a pass. You'll have second and long. Uh, we try to do a good job with our get-back-on-track package, second and 10, second and 11, second and 9, try to get half of it back because we felt like our third down and three to four offense when we had Jordan Reed, mm-hmm. Jameson Crowder, Pierre, those guys was pretty yeah. dang good. You know, we could run the choice routes, the option routes. We get the ball out of our hands. We were pretty efficient in that. We could not overcome a lot of third down and 9, 10, and 11 pluses. So uh, that's a lot of punts. That's a lot of bad football. Uh, third and 10 uh, uh, rate to converting is very, very low. It's always been very low. So you got to try to stay out of those. Uh, but you're right. Um, some players would just grind and try to make a first and 10 play great, mm. take a 12-yard sack. If the screen's not there, they'll hold it, try to scramble and get a 12-yard sack. You can't overcome yeah. that. So uh, I used to say that a lot. And my brother used to say that a lot. We said, never make a bad play yeah. worse, you know. Or what's why was that a great play uh, when you threw it away? Because that was the only play. And that's important mentality to have. Hey, everyone. This is Brett Boone. Would you know it? I've got a podcast going strong in our fourth year. Tune in as I sit down with my friends, some of the biggest names in sports, media, entertainment, for a lot of fun and in-depth conversations. As you know, baseball's been my life. It's been in the family for a long time, but it's a lot more than that here. It's sort of like taking a ride in a golf cart around a beautiful track. Join me every week for multiple episodes on the Brett Boone Podcast, available on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcast. You'll be glad you did. You know, you mentioned something about third down there and, like, Jordan Reed, Crowder, and, like, what those guys can do on third down. If you don't have a guy like that for you in the offense, because, like, when I look at the commander's offense right now, I don't necessarily see, like, a great third down presence. And, you know, Curtis Samuel or uh, uh, Jahan Dotson could maybe fill that role. But how hard is it to execute on third down not having a guy that can do that at a high level? It, it's very hard. You know, I think uh, my a great telling tale is my last year there where we were 0-5. I think all five games Jordan Reed was questionable or probable to play. Right. He had the concussion. So I had all the third downs geared to Jordan. And Friday would come. He couldn't play. I'd be like, damn, now what? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's hard. you got to have that yeah. guy. You see the uh, damage that Cooper Cup does. And a lot of these receivers, Justin Jefferson, these guys do on third down, uh, you know, it, it's very important, but there are different ways you can attack with the crossing routes. But you call a crossing route, they play zone, they pass everything off, and you're sitting there like, right. you know. <laughs> well, I mean, that's something you see a lot with this offense, right? They, you know, third down, they're they got their crossing route on. It's third and five or six, and they're playing zone, and everybody's covered up. Like, yeah, you know, it's it's tough when you don't have that that like Jordan. I don't think people understand how good Jordan was yeah. for his time. You know, I mean, like that ability just to win on third down in the red zone, like. It's so, like such a huge skill set for NFL offense. Well, you can move them outside, and, and you see the matchups. You know, when you move them outside and yeah. you flank that by himself, the safety goes out there, you know it's man. 
You put him inside, you put him in motion, you get him in stacks and bunches, and he had the ability to read zone and man, break it off and man, hook it up in zone. And it was very difficult to defend guys like that. You see Cooper Cup doing the same thing, obviously a different position. Yeah. Uh, but when you can protect them, get them free releases, get them out in space and let them read the defense, uh, that's why he has so much success. I mean, Sean puts him in a great position, and Cooper Cup is very, very smart, and Stafford's got a great arm, and he can fit it in anywhere. Uh, but not having that guy makes it more difficult, obviously. Uh, you got to probably rely on some running games, some draws, and some uh, vertical passes. Uh, try to hopefully you have some speed on the outside or something. You got to have something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. When you talk about the physical traits for quarterbacks, too, I mean, that that's part of what the commander struggled with last year is like some of those third downs, tight window throws, Heineke couldn't squeeze it in there. What does a guy like Wentz with his arm or some of the other guys that you've coached um, or you watch a guy like Stafford, how, what kind of difference does that make? You know, we talked about the mental processing side of it, but the, the physical traits, when I mean, you just have a guy who can sling it. Like I don't that. know. Uh, you know, Kirk was really, really good and really, really accurate. Um, uh, you know, there's some times when I'm on the field of the pregame warm-up and I'm looking across the field and I see Aaron Rodgers slinging it and I see Stafford. I'm like, oh, my God, this isn't even fair. <laughs> right. But you got to have that. You got to have that guy. The guys who win Super Bowls, you know, unless they have just an outstanding killer defense. I mean, you're not going to advance and be uh, in the big games if you don't have that big type, big time player, both mentally and physically. The guys that are really, really good are also very smart and have great arm talent. And those guys are, you can't find them. There's about ten in the world. Uh, so if you got yeah. one. Uh, you're going to coach for a long time, and you're going to win a lot of games. Coach, who's the best quarterback uh, you've you've worked with over the course of your career? Uh, probably, you know, Kirk was probably the most accurate. Uh, yeah, know. everyone hates on Kirk, but he's got a nice skill set now. Yeah, so, he's very uh, accurate. Anyway, and ahead, I didn't have a lot of time to work with Alex. Alex was uh, was very good. We were six and three. We were pretty good when Alex was playing. He he did make a lot of mistakes. He wasn't going to hit a lot of the home runs for you. Uh, a lot of singles, two doubles. Uh, but be very, very efficient, not turn the ball over. And there's a lot to be said about that. He can get you in the right play. Yeah. Uh, so I really liked Alex too. But, um, yeah, probably those two. Is there uh, is there something you're looking for, like when you're evaluating quarterbacks that, like, sticks out above everything else that say, I, if, if I'm drafting a quarterback, I'm signing a quarterback, he has to have this quality? Uh, well, mental toughness is what you can't really grade. Yeah. You know, you see, I like to see a guy get hit right in the mouth and on the next play sit in the pocket and drop a dime. You know, under pressure, you got to be tough, you know, because we're going to get hit. Obviously, you got to have the skill set. You got to have the size. You got to have some arm strength. Um, And then you got to try to dig into their mental capacity. You know, there's been so many great arm strength, great great quarterbacks with great arm strength. They're not great quarterbacks. Quarterbacks with great arm strength and arm talent that haven't been able to translate to the NFL field because mentally it hasn't just hit them. And maybe they haven't been surrounded with the routes 40 cast. Uh, but it takes more than just great arm talent, and arm strength. I like to find a guy that can run a little bit and create because we mentioned before mm-hmm. the it's very hard to call the perfect play all the time. The pass rush, I'd love to see a guy right. create. Uh, unscripted plays are very, very important nowadays. You look at what Mahomes does, Aaron Rodgers done over the course of his career, uh, Russell Wilson, uh, Josh Allen. You know, I'd like to see the percentage of their big plays that were called based on the chalkboard play, or was it a uh, play right, that was outside yeah. the pocket, scramble drill, nine one one type things? Uh, you know, that is very important in football nowadays. The ability to create plays on your own. When you were a coordinator in Cincinnati, like, and you thought of how you viewed your job, did your job or your view of what a coordinator needed to be change at all? When you then had the perspective of being a head coach, so in other words, you get a couple years in Washington, you look mm-hmm. back and you're like. Oh well, if I ever become a coordinator again, I would I would maybe do that a little differently, or or I understand this a little better now, having that that different vantage point. Well, when I was a coordinator, I worked for uh, um, uh, Coach Lewis, and he was a defensive coach, so he kind of let mm-hmm. me have the reins. He didn't really he'd come in and sit in some meetings and offer some input in running game or what have you, or maybe talk about the team's defense, Dick LeBeau's defense or what have you. Uh, but he really didn't have a lot of say. Now, when I became head coach, I was an offensive guy, and and I. I thought the reason I became head coach is because I was a good offensive coordinator. I just want to just give that up. I still want to have a lot of input in the game plan, third downs, red zone. Uh, so I didn't want to really give that up. Hindsight, I probably would have given up more of it and worked more with the defense and maybe more with, uh, you know, the players, uh, the injuries, all that stuff, and looking ahead and trying to scout opponents a little bit more. Uh, closely, um, looking at the big picture more than just tunnel vision on the offense. I think I would have been better suited to do that. Mm. Um, 
but yeah, I, it's just it's just hard to you know when you're a head coach to try to put the necessary time into being an offensive coordinator. Yeah, definitely, and and that's actually something that is interesting about the setup in Washington now is Ron hired Jack Del Rio and immediately was like, no, Jack's running the defense. Obviously, Ron, you were, when you were here, you were a first-time head coach. You didn't have that perspective that Ron had of the nine years in Carolina. So how hard is that if you, like, for instance, when you had Sean or eventually when you, you let Kevin ascend up to offensive coordinator to take your hands off the wheel a little bit and, and let a guy who's younger, less experienced, uh, cook a little bit? Yeah, I, I didn't really, I, as much as I could have probably. <laughs> Uh, you know, we, we, we would sit down and make all the lists together, the third down list. So when even Sean was calling the plays, when he had the headset, the plays were pretty much, you know, the first third and two to four. Here's the play. Here's the play. Here's the play. Red zone. Here's our top five passes on third down or top five on first down. Here's our top play passes. And it was just, it would flow pretty easily. Um, so, uh, it's, it's hard because if you're standing there as a play caller, if you had success, like in Cincinnati in 13, I thought we were as good offenses as there was in football. We just had a couple injuries at the end of our tight ends. But um, then you get the job because of that. You can't just say, take your hands off the wheel. Because then if you don't have mm-hmm. success, you'd be like, I'm going to take over. Then you piss everybody off. You know, <laughs> so you right. want to have the input. Uh, but I did try to back away a little bit more so my last couple of years, but uh, probably not as enough as I should have. Did you get, how often did you get to face Del Rio? And what did, what did you make? Uh, like what, when you, you know, we talked earlier about like you, you get up, uh, it's whatever game week and you go look at the defensive coordinator first and see what he's done when you woke up in game week and it was Jack Del Rio. What were the things that were, were top of mind? Uh, well, it was, I'm not, he, he wasn't a very difficult coach to go against. I mean, he was uh very fundamental. I, I don't mean that in a bad way. I mean, he, he had his yeah. fronts that were no, pretty no, no. standard. He had his coverages were pretty standard. He, changed, he played, had very few blitzes. He wasn't that hard. You know, if he had good players, he was a hell of a lot better. Uh, I think he was the uh, head coach in Oakland uh, when we played him, and we put up, I think, 50. Um, uh, you know, and he didn't have as good of yeah. players back then. When he has good players, like most defense coordinators are good. But as far as scheme is concerned, uh, not the most, you know, creative guy but he's sound in what he does the players know where they're at and they play hard that's there's a lot of very successful coordinators in the history of the league that aren't overly complicated they get their guys to play hard run to the ball and they get good players to do it now if you're not very complicated on defense and your players aren't as good as they need to be you're going to give up some shots and a lot of yards but they are getting better on defense we try to leave with a good defensive lineman group um and a couple good linebackers and uh, obviously they're missing some corners or something like that. They've tried to address, but, uh, you know, I think they'll be fine. Do you have a defensive coordinator that just gave you fits? Like, you know, um, Wade Phillips is someone that comes to mind that was always kind of interesting on third down. Baltimore defense always like gave the me Baltimore the most defense. fits. I hate Anything Baltimore. that comes to mind. Uh, they had the best players. They had the best players. They had a yeah. really good scheme and they were tough. Yeah. And then obviously Pittsburgh with Dick LeBeau already mentioned when I was in Cincinnati, they were tough. You know, I think when we got to this, when yeah. I got the job here, I think our division wanted a strong, was not as strong defensively as it had been in the past. Philadelphia was reeling a little bit. The Giants were reeling a little bit. Uh, the Cowboys weren't mm-hmm. quite as dominant. But the Cowboys started when they got to Marcus or, uh, Lawrence and and their pass rush became quite an issue. They became very mm-hmm. difficult yeah. uh, as well. But I'd say the Baltimore Ravens uh, and obviously the Dick LeBeau defense were the hardest I had to go get. You know what's crazy is you mentioned both those teams. You mentioned their toughness. Like, I don't understand how they do this, but they kind of build a culture of toughness. Like every time you played them, you knew you were going to have to get two face masks out and just dust them off just in case. Is there something that you can do as a head coach or is that team building? Like what cultivates that? Is that the old guys in the room? Like how did they get that done? You think? Yeah, I think both. I think they have great veteran leadership always had and uh, they have good, strong coaches and they know what they want. And Ozzie Newsom does a great job. They know what they want to draft and they all work together mm-hmm. and they draft the players yeah. that fit their scheme. Uh, they don't draft 210-pound defensive ends that can rush the passer. You know, they, they draft the big suckers, long, big, yeah. tough, yeah. physical guys. And then yeah. if you have to preach physicality as a head coach, it ain't going to work. You know, it has to come right. within the, the – the players have to be physical. You have to draft those type of players. That's why I try to draft Arian, uh, 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 Dron Payne, and Jonathan Allen, and Matt Ioannidis, mm-hmm. tough guys, right. big, tough guys. Um you know, but it takes a lot of those guys, and then you have to maintain that toughness, and you have to have some success. Uh, but and you have to have a good scheme around it. And those 
defensive coordinators at those two places have great scheme as well. You mentioned like uh, veteran leadership. You know, that's something that there's been a lot of turnover in terms of veteran. Obviously, kind of the most notable one is like Ryan Kerrigan leaving. What do those guys do for your team? And what do they do for you as a head coach in terms of establishing a culture? You got to have them. And uh, I think yeah. if there's one thing that I think we did not, I wouldn't say we didn't have. I just felt like, you know, especially on defense, you know, we did not, yeah. other than Kerrigan, and Kerrigan was a soft-spoken guy. It wasn't like he was a great yeah. leader. He led by an example, and I love Ryan. He, he, I would, I'd take Ryan Kerrigan any day on my team. But he, as far as being a leader and getting on people to work hard and run to the ball, that's not Ryan's forte. You know, Ryan's just going to do his job the best he can do it and, and sprint to the sideline and sprint back on the field, do the best he can. But uh, we didn't really have that strong presence. We tried to get him in here early in my career. But, uh, you know, when you get those guys in here, the Ray Lewis type guys and the Ed Reed's over there and they had Troy Palomalu, they had James Harrison, these guys that not only play tough, but they uh, they walk the walk, they talk the talk. You got to have those guys. And, and it takes time to build. And once you get them, uh, everybody else fills in man i mean if you're a young guy you're gonna work to their what they say and how they want it to be done if you don't have that guy then yeah. the young guys who don't really know they can go anywhere they can go anywhere you know what i mean from a metal standpoint so yeah it's inter it's interesting you mentioned that like you know when i first got here like everyone's like you know when i got later in my career they're like logan you play so tough but like i came in with london fletcher and there wasn't like a tougher yeah. dude and that was the standard. It was like, you're hurt, you're nicked up, like he's practicing, you're practicing. We're going to hit him practice because he wanted to hit every single day. And like, I just think that is so critical having guys with that, you know, that vocal leadership that have good character, like, but they're hard to find, I guess, too, is the other issue. You know what I mean? Guys that you can trust. Uh, definitely, yeah, definitely hard to find. There are not many guys like Glenn Fletcher in the world anymore. Yeah. Ray Lewis, you know, uh, you know, that's why, you know, when you get them, you got to hold on to them. Uh, last question then is about a guy who's who's young but developing into one of those guys. Uh, you drafted McLaren. Uh, how quickly did you know that you got a steal in the third round, and and what have you seen from him as his career has developed uh, the last couple of years? Well, he's a two-year captain of Ohio State at wide receiver position, so that says a little bit something about him. It's not like he went to Liberty. Mm -hmm. uh, All due respect to Liberty, of course. <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, we already knew that his. Uh, his DNA was exactly what you want for a football player in the National Football League. He, we knew that he had great speed. His production maybe not have been has not have been as good as some of the other guys that came out in that draft. Obviously, that's why he slipped. But when you watch him at the Senior Bowl, he's the best player on the field. Uh, and then he's also the best special team player on Ohio State's team when he was a younger player. So we knew he had the toughness, the skill set. Um, just excited to get him. I thought you know we should have probably taken him second, but. Uh, I think we gave up our second. We ended up trading up in the first or something like that. But, uh, yeah, so we're just very fortunate to get him. And I, I'm happy to say that he's going to continue to do great because he works harder than anybody. He's going to play through pain. He's going to go up and go after the contested balls. He just needs more opportunities. How important is, like, you know, you mentioned the senior bowl and you mentioned the special teams playing in college. Like, how important was that to your evaluation? Because I think it shows a lot. Yeah, well, special teams doesn't always happen. You can't always see that. But senior bowl, those senior bowls, the, yeah. the East-West Shrine games, I loved watching those bowl games, the practices and all that. You see how guys worked. You see how they consistently performed over a play-to-play yeah. -play basis as they're trying to learn something new. It might be a new front or new terminology and see how they react to that right. because that's what it's going to be like uh, when, they get to, when they get a new job, you know, with us. Um, and, and some of those guys really flourished in that, in that uh, uh, scenario, and some guys really struggled, and you can see it. Take Command Podcast from Odyssey Sports. Amazing stuff with Jay Gruden there. Uh, thank, big thanks to the former Washington head coach. Uh, and Logan, I, I think I think we got the green light to have him back on again sometime in, in the summer or in the fall. So we'll definitely be picking his brain more. It's just so fun to talk to guys who've been it, who've done it at that level, like the way they think about football, the way they see football. It's just every time you have a conversation with him, with Ron, you know, with Kyle, with Kyle Sean, any of those guys, like it just shows like that you're thinking about the game at like this. You know, like you're an ant in the grass and they're standing <laughs> down looking at you. You know what I mean? Like in terms of yeah. how they view the game. I, so. I mean, I, I, I kind of referenced this story, but I'll tell a quick story of of one of the interactions I had with Jay. And I was just like, oh, God, the detail you think in is not remotely close <laughs> to mine. But it was there was a screen pass. I think it was like a Monday night game. And Crowder was like he should have had a touchdown on the play. It wound up being like a loss of one. And I remember I was walking back from the press conference with and it was late in the game, a close game. They lost. 
And I was walking back from the press conference to the locker room with Jay. And I was like, man, it looked like that screen was blocked up for Crowder. And he goes, man, if he takes three steps forward and then comes back for the ball instead of one, if he doesn't rush it and he sets up the DB, he's out. And I was like, oh, so those are the bargains. And this was like my first or second year on the beat. So like understanding, when I say Jay taught me a lot of football, it wasn't like he sat me down and was like, okay, son, here's the X's and here's the O's and like that stuff. It was just those little side conversations that were really illustrative of the level of detail it takes to win at the NFL level. And I think that, you know, like we said when he was on, so I'm not, I'm not saying this behind his back. Like I think at times he got really frustrated when guys couldn't necessarily pick up what he was putting down because it just comes so naturally to him. He really is like a football X's and O's savant kind of guy. Well, you know, what's crazy is like, they, like, I know the screen you're talking about. Mm -hmm. It's called like a slammer or jailbreak screen, Mm -hmm. Uh, slammer screen, jailbreaks different, but like the coaching point for the receiver catching the football is three steps up. And so I'm sure as a coach, that it's just absolutely like I remember that still to this day, and it's been like five years, right? Right. Well, and, and that's like, that's so why fact, he was so fond of a guy like you because yeah. you understood those finer points. Because I, I think it's also understanding that it's like the coaching point isn't there for your own like, so I can hear myself talk about it. Right. It is there. Um. It, it is there so that you understand the bigger picture of the play. And that you right. understand that, like, in order for the timing of this larger piece, in order for the left tackle, and especially when it's Trent Williams, to be able to get out there yeah. and get in front of you, like, if Trent yeah. needs three steps, everyone else needs five. So yeah, yeah. can you at least give the guy three? It's like that bigger right. picture stuff, or like you as a tight end understanding what the guard was doing inside and why the yeah. angle of your block mattered, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And so, yeah, I'm sure that's really frustrating. But yeah, that's, I mean, it's crazy. Like, if you ever have an opportunity to, like, sit in a meeting, and just listen to the way they talk about football. It's like you feel like you're in like a physics class. You know what I mean? Like it's just the. I remember my, my first year in the NFL. My first meeting, I sat down and like Kyle just started talking, and I was like, "There's no possible way I can store all this information." It's just it's just so so high level. But yeah, it's a cool it's cool that he took the time and, and hung out with us. Definitely. All right. So what we're gonna do here for the rest of the podcast our Thursday scouting reports continue in the NFC East. And last week, we talked about the New York Giants. Of course, if you want that, uh, you can just go back in the podcast feed because it's a podcast and it's on demand, and that's how it works. Uh, but Giants, we talked a lot about the draft class because that's basically what their offseason has been outside of the coaching right. change. For Dallas, it is the other side of the equation. They have some interesting draft picks. We'll get into them in a little bit, but it's it's not even what they brought in in free agency, Logan. I am... You know, I, I kind of look at what they lost in free agency and go, that might be the most significant thing. Yeah, I think, you know, like we talked about it off the air, kind of prepping for the show, like Amari, like losing Amari Cooper. And obviously they signed Michael Gallup back to a fairly large deal. It's not elite money. I think it's like six, five years, 65 million bucks, which is pretty good if that's going to be your number one receiver. But a guy, a lot of upside, right? But is he skilled enough to replace a guy like uh, Amari Cooper? And um I don't know the answer to that. I think Mark Mar- Cooper's track record is much more established. It's much more laid out. It's much more something you can bet on and bank on. And especially when your quarterback's Dak Prescott and a guy whose career seems to ebb and flow with the talent around him, I think that that's just so important, you know, to keep people around him. So the fact that they let him, Mar- and that, and that this is just bad business in my opinion. You look at the look at the the receiver market right now, and you traded Amari Cooper for a fifth round draft pick. And maybe that's what the market was for Amari Cooper. Right. But like, that's such you, a great you're point. Seeing, you're seeing people mortgage entire franchises' futures on, on receivers. You know what I'm saying? And, and the fact that, that is, that's what you did is somewhat mind-blowing. Now, I don't think Amari Cooper is, is you know, Tyreek Hill or, you know, uh, the guy from Green Bay. What's his Devontae name? Devontae Adams. Devontae Adams. He's not that same level. Right. But if, if, if you're getting these, these quarterback kind of deals for those receivers – it should be at least more than a fifth round pick. Seems like you're just giving it's crazy. Away. Well, let me ask you this, because this is my thing with Amari Cooper. I watch Dallas and I watch them when he plays and I go, they're a way better football team. Like yeah. they're a fantastic football team when he plays. And when he's out, it shows up like they miss him terribly. So yeah. if he's not Tyree kill, he's not Devontae Adams, but he's not a guy who's worth a fifth round pick. What is Amari Cooper? Because I, mean, I, I think, think that's going to help define he's... what Dallas is without him. Do you think he's the top 10 receiver? That's just real quick. I'd have to like kind of do the list, think but I, I, to yeah, me, yeah. like he's kind of in that, maybe he's in like, like eight to 12 range, eight to 15, like yeah, somewhere in there. Right. Yeah. 15, eight, I'd say top 15 for sure. I think the thing with him is he's injured a lot. He's been injured a lot. 
And when you watch him play, there's certain guys when you watch them and they're just, they move different. Like you watch Julio, you watch D, uh, DK Metcalf, right? You watch even Tyler Lockett. They, there's just like an elite twitch and elite quickness and elite explosive quality. Amari is a little bit more smooth when he runs. Mm-hmm. And so he doesn't have like this kind of sexy, you know, visual when you watch him run routes. He's an excellent route runner. That's one of my favorite things about him. I think he does a good job. I think his hands are okay. But I think, you know, like in terms of like, traits that's down on the list a little bit but i think he helps you wins football games ultimately right and i think um i think for a top 15 receiver in this market a guy that's a proven commodity now in the injury history might be the big thing here yeah but i I do think you need to give him a a longer look than than a fifth round pick to leave you know and maybe you're trying to offload the contract whatever and they definitely were they definitely were but i i also don't think that like that contract is horrendous um if he plays at the level that he can playing of course the injury history is what we're talking about here but you know we just got done talking with jay about the if you don't have jameson crowder if you don't have Jordan Reed, if you don't have that guy on third down, well, guess who was that guy for Dallas? Like, Amari Cooper's yeah. that guy because of his route running ability. He can create separation on time on anybody, any, you know, any yeah. down, especially on third down. And and that is an invaluable skill in the league. And that that's why I just, I never understood why he was kind of an afterthought down there, why it seemed like they were always ready to move on from him uh, last year. And, and then why they ultimately do for such a small price, uh, even with the contract that that he has, I just I didn't get that. But uh, at least it sounds like I'm not alone because you're with me on it. Well, I mean, it's it's I, I guess I understand it because the contract volume is so high. But also, I, I, and like you said, maybe it's not that bad given the new wide receiver market. But and the injury history, maybe. But again, it just seems like bad process. You know, I'm I'm surprised that the market wasn't there for him. And I maybe that maybe you know that's something that I always kind of fall back on. If the NFL has a low value on him then we as fans should probably have a lower value on him. Just because he's a big name doesn't mean he's a good football player. Like, I like what he does, but is is it elevating the team? Like, that's the question, and a lot of teams probably said no, not for whatever, $20 million a year. So that's something to, like, I think keep in mind, too, about, you know, where like where his value actually is. But I think I think the more important thing here, the, and the reason we're talking about this in the context of their offseason, is how this affects Dak Prescott. Like, who right. becomes the number one wide receiver now? And I think is it – is it Michael Gallup coming off of an ACL? Like, that seems a little bit foolish to me. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, and ACL so, recovery, it, it takes a full year and then probably another three to four months after that to really feel like you're back to yourself. And so as you go into another year with Dak and, you know, he's got the big contract now and, and that limits your ability to make other moves and all that kind of stuff, like, that's – Gallup's got to be great for them. And obviously, C.D. Yeah. Lamb, I think they, they probably would look at right there – as their number one guy, but a lot of production has to be made up from tight ends and receivers here for them. But yeah, so anyway, so now the receiver room looks drastically different. Obviously, Dalton Schultz is back, kind of their tight end extraordinaire last year, at least came. And I, and I have my questions about whether he's like a true top five, top 10 tight end in the NFL, because how much of, of his production was dictated by the fact that coverage was leaning towards Gallup, leaning towards Cooper. And then I think the other thing that you look at is you look at the offensive line. If we're just talking offensive side of the football, and now we can start talking about the draft class a little bit. You know, they draft Tyler Smith in the first round because they have they can't re-sign Lyle Collins, right? He's gone. And then they're uh, and so they're kind of scrambling to replace that piece. They draft a guy who I think has got tremendous upside in Tyler Smith. And you talk to any single coach in the NFL, and they were their eyes would light up, their voice would get all high and squeaky because he's a big athletic dude who measured off measured and tested off the charts who's maybe the rawest prospect in the whole class who went in the first round. And so you bring him in, and, and there's obviously going to be a pretty significant talent drop-off with him in the lineup. And I think, again, like Dak Prescott needs pieces around him. He's not like Tom Brady who's going to elevate you know, anybody in, that you put in the receiver room, anybody you put in the tight end room. He's going to make the O-line look better. He's not that type of player. He's very good. He's not that type of player. So you know, putting in a kind of a developmental piece on the offensive line, a guy that I think is going to be good, but a guy that probably needed to sit for at least six games. He's now your starting right guard. And then you have kind of, you, you lose your number one wide receiver. Ezekiel Elliott's not looking as good. And especially behind an offensive line, that's not going to be playing as well because you got new pieces coming in there. Steele is the right tackle. He's the guy that was kind of been a career backup who played himself in a more time, but not an elite player by any stretch of the imagination. So again, how does that affect Dak? How does that affect Zeke? Yeah, and, and all of a sudden, this offense, the questions start mounting up, and you kind of say to yourself, maybe this offense isn't going to be the best in the division like it was last year. All of a sudden, that mantle kind of passes to Philly, I think, when you look at this situation here. Yeah, I mean, I'll take Dak over Hurts, but 
I, you talk about the I'm other. Not saying that, yeah. You talk about the other weapons that they have, and and the offensive line play. Like that's going to be a huge factor. Uh, offensive line play is, you know, can can ruin what still looks like. I mean, when you read it out loud, like if Gallup is healthy and Ceedee Lamb is healthy, and they still have Tony Pollard is it, to complement Zeke, and Zeke's not what he was, but he's still, you know, he's not terrible. Um, and Dalton Schultz, like that sounds formidable at least until you get to the O line, and then you have all these massive questions. The thing that I still yeah. makes think makes them as dangerous as anybody in the division is defensively, like they got some dudes and, you know, with Demarcus Lawrence and they've lost some pieces, not to they did, but they did, they did, but they still have plenty of good players. I mean, to have Lawrence and Parsons, like that sets the floor pretty high. As long as you're healthy. Now we were saying that about Washington's defense last year and then young and sweat get hurt. And you're looking at the season that Washington had. So the depth becomes an issue when you start to lose some of those guys. And can, you know, Trayvon Diggs do what he did? Or do teams start yeah, to take advantage that's... of him a little bit more because he is a gambler type of corner? And, you know, the numbers he put up last year seem like they might not be as sustainable when you dive in a little bit further. But, you know, yeah. that pass rush, I still think, is the most dangerous part of this Cowboys football team. And with Parsons and Lawrence still there, like, that's still a part of their well, football team. I'm really glad you brought that up because I think the biggest piece, like when they saw when that defense started playing really good football, it's when Randy Randy Gregor was in the lineup. That's and also his true. His pressure rate was insane, and that's why he got that big contract in uh, in um, Denver, right? And I think mm-hmm. like now m- missing that piece, they went out and tried to sign some guys, Deontay Fowler. They re-signed Armstrong, but nobody quite has that elite juice that Gregory has. Like when you watch Gregory, it just it jumps off the film. And he was hurt for a lot of last year. And you mentioned they still have Lawrence, but one of the things that made that group so effective is they had three guys all of a sudden that could win one-on-one ra- matchups, right? Parsons could rush from linebacker. He could rush from end. Gregory could run rush from inside. Lawrence could rush from inside. And now you don't have that same dynamic duo on the defensive line in terms of pass rushers that can make Micah Parsons play better. So does Micah Parsons now have to kind of be limited to like a third down pass rush specialist? Because I don't think that's where he's at his best. I think you need to get a guy. They signed Fowler, like I said, who is a guy who's a former first round draft pick, a guy who's never really lived up to the hype. He had that great 13 sack season when he was with uh, the Rams a couple years ago. But again, that's Aaron Donald inflation, in my opinion, Mm 1000%, right? You're playing next to him. You're going to get a lot of cleanup pressures and sacks. Um, And so I think, you're not going to get Randy Gregory type production from him. So all of a sudden now the back end, Stefan Diggs, those safeties, those, you know, uh, Keanu Neal's who's playing linebacker curse. Who's never really been a great coverage player in terms of zone coverage is great man to man player. But all of a sudden now they got to hold up a much, much longer in coverage against good football teams in the NFL. So I think that missing that piece is a big deal. And then not being able to find somebody to replace that, I think, is also something that's really critical. So, when looking at this offseason, and again, they go to the draft here. Let me let's give me, let's see if I get this guy's name. They signed a guy who's very similar to Randy Gregory, in my opinion, from uh, from I think South Carolina. Uh, but again, a guy who's got some problems, got some legal history, some troubles. But in terms of twitch and burst and snap, maybe that's the guy you think takes the role. But again, you're relying on a guy who's got to develop into that role, develop into Randy Gregory to to kind of flush out this pass rush. So, I think. Again, when I look at the defense, I say to myself, like, where are they actually in terms of, in terms of where compared to last year? And you mentioned Stefan Diggs. I think that's a fantastic point. Trayvon he gave Diggs. up the most, Trayvon Diggs, sorry. He gave up the most passing yards per completion attempt of any defensive back in the NFL. And so everyone's riding this 10 interception season, which is great. But again, that is a high-variance statistic. That's going to come back down. So when that defense isn't giving you 10 turnovers, when he's not giving you 10 turnovers, and instead he's right. giving up the most passing yards for any DB in the NFL, that looks drastically different. So I think that's something also, um, again, I think there's a big regression for that group because of who they lost and because of the level of the style of play they were at before. And I think you pair that with the offense and you say, like, what are we doing? And then we haven't even talked about the draft yet, which we can talk about now, unless you got something to say, Craig. Uh, no, I mean, I would say let's let's hit the draft real quick, and uh, then you know, Dallas fans can can start. Oh, we we said you were you were going to have a Twitter account by the time we recorded this. I di- I didn't do it because I was busy, but I'm working on it. I'm working on it. Okay, so we, we got to have a place for the Dallas fans that that find the podcast to go and be mad at you because you said their team's not as good. <laughs> so I, so right. the thing about their draft is I think, you know, Tyler Smith, Sam Williams, the defensive end. I'm sorry, he wasn't from Carolina. He's from Mississippi, Old Miss Rebels. Jalen Tolbert are their first three picks. I actually like Jalen Tolbert quite a bit, but he's 
he's not going to come in and, and he's got a little growing to do. Sam Williams, again, legal stuff, really twitched up, nice football player, probably a first-round value. But again, there's some stuff around him that make you wonder about his professionalism. We already talked about Tyler Smith and how he's like maybe the most athletic offensive lineman in the class, but a lot of, got a lot of growing to do, right? So you say to yourself, obviously, like I feel like this mm-hmm. is kind of like a classic Jerry Jones draft, like high upside, like he's, he's like an oil prospector, right? He's looking for these guys that are going to hit big. And you look at Jalen Tolbert, 6'3", yeah. 190 pounds, big, fast. But he's also like a six-year senior, fifth-year senior, a little older, right? Took a long time to develop question marks there so again like the draft is kind of his this draft specifically like uh clark out of lsu the linebacker for example maybe one of the best linebackers in the class loved his tape but is also going to have like spinal fusion surgery and might miss the whole year you know what i mean but probably miss and might not play football again so like that's who you're taking in the fifth round uh mike uh waltatsko from uh, north dakota is one of my favorite offensive lineman prospects in the in the glass in the class big fast athletic but he's a swing guy. He's got to grow into his body a little bit, right? So anybody in this group that's going to come in and be an immediate impact, like probably not. And so like if you look at Washington's draft, kind of to counter, maybe not the sexiest names on that list necessarily, but everyone has a role and a, and a quick path to the field and a guys that have outstanding pedigree, you know, captains, you know, five-year starters, all that kind of thing. And this is kind of the mm-hmm. antithesis of that, just totally different in terms of, guys in terms of experience, in terms of development. And I think that, again, adds to the level of uncertainty. Because let's say Tyler Smith figures it out in off-season conditioning or whatever and becomes the best guard in the NFL. Like, that's within the realm of possibility. Is it likely? Probably not. Because he has so much growing to do. Like, do I think he's going to be a good football player? Do I like him? Yes. But again, that's like a year away. That's a long time down the road. And so how is he helping you now, I guess, is my saying, is what I'm saying. Right. And it sounds like it's also a reflection of where these teams think they are because Washington knows they need to get some sturdiness underneath them. And Dallas, you know, probably feels like, hey, if we can get one or two more players, like we're we're, going to win a championship. And what I think is interesting about the last 15 minutes of conversation is they might have been that at the end of last year, but some of the pieces they lost take away from that. And and replacing those guys might actually be the more important play. And uh, we'll see if the draft picks that they, they brought in Uh, or some of the free agent guys they brought in are able to actually do that. All right, on Monday's show, uh, we'll have a Monday mailbag. Uh, We will dive into, I guess, another position group. Uh, That was fun. I think people really enjoyed that, the middle linebacker breakdown on Monday. So we'll pick a position group. Maybe tweet us uh, or tweet me at Craig Hoffman and uh, let let us know which one you guys want us to do. And then uh, next week, we'll break down Philly yeah, here also, on Thursday. And then, Logan, what else are we going to do? Running backs for the show. So why don't we just do running backs on Monday, and then we can just kill two birds with one stone. There we go. <laughs> Bam. And then you can listen to the podcast, and you can watch Logan on TV, and you can get uh, lots yeah. of depth here, and you can get some Everyone's pictures happy. there. Everyone's and you're a happy. very happy Washington Commanders fan, <laughs> which is all that we want. All right. Uh Thanks for listening. Make sure you subscribe anywhere that you get your podcast. Thanks again to Jay Gruden for coming on the show. And uh, we'll see you guys on Monday here on Take Command.